Oh, and, and I'm sorry to even mention this. Did you hit record on there? Can you hit record on there? Yeah. Sarah, can you do that? All right, thanks. We've had a number of little technical glitches today, so we're just kind of hanging on. It does. Well, church, I'm curious today, when was the last time you learned something new? Are there any old dogs in here who have learned new tricks? Yeah, I'm seeing some raised hands and some nodding heads. And I wonder, how many of you learned something new because you wanted to? How many of you learned something new because you had to? And how many of you learned something new when you didn't even realize you were learning something new? All of the above, right. And what I want to talk to you about today is this invitation that the Lord has kind of called us to, to to utilize every resource that he's given us to grow and to mature and to be built up in Christ. And so I'm going to look at a couple of different passages today. So if you have a Bible, pull it out. If you don't have one, there's one under the, the pews there or under the seats there. If you've got it at home, if you're on your computer, pull up a web browser and uh, be ready to plug in some passages and verses because we're going to look at some of these together. But I want to first alert us to this general calling and really a need that we all have in Christ. A need that we all have to not remain where we are, but to actually move to a different place or to grow in a new way or to have a different perspective than the one we have now. Because I don't know about you, I have not arrived yet. Has anyone arrived? We were, we were on our way to a friend's house the other day, and the GPS told me, you have arrived. And I got really excited, because I thought, finally, after all these years, I finally arrived. And then we hadn't, I hadn't arrived anywhere. We weren't even at their house yet. The GPS was off just like it would have been off if it were telling me that I'd had it all together and finally made it, you know? And that's the reality we live in. You know, when Jesus first called his disciples, he walked with them for three years. He trained them in ministry. He, he taught them how to preach the good news of the kingdom. He taught them how to heal, how to cast out demons. He, he, he gave them instruction on how to approach life and how to approach being in that ministry position, and just life in general. And then, right before he ascended into heaven, he said this in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. A lot of you know the verse. In Matthew 28, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And then he gives them this promise. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so we have this need in the the church. We need to be disciples. And we need to be disciples who make disciples. And really this isn't an option. It's not like uh, Jesus said, well, if you feel like it. Astra, can you progress that slide? This is not working for me. It's not like he said, well, if you feel like it, you can be a disciple. If you feel like it, you can make disciples. And then he gives some very specific things that making disciples includes. So baptism is one of them. Sometimes people ask me, do I need to be baptized? And I said, well, Jesus told you to be baptized. And quite frankly, he told me to baptize you. So we don't want to be in disobedience. So if no other reason, then yes. But obviously there's a lot of great reasons why you might do that. But then he also says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now I wonder, first of all, do you know everything Jesus has commanded you? Do you feel like you have a firm grasp on all the things that Jesus is asking you to do? I hope you have some sense of what that is. But I also wonder, have you ever been taught how to obey those things? I don't know if we think about this very much. Because I began to reflect as a pastor. I reflect back and I thought of all the training I got in seminary. 
all the training I got in Bible college, all the training that I got in churches, and almost every type of training that I got, apart from kind of pastoral care, but in terms of helping people grow, and pastoral care is a part of that, but it, most of what I was taught about how to help people grow was to explain to them so that they would understand what Jesus said. But I don't think I ever was told how to teach people to do what Jesus said. Ever. And that created a bit of conflict for me. <laughs> and I remember this, this if, if you are a pastor who doesn't know how to help people grow, that feels like an existential crisis. <laughs> but you know what? It's not just pastors who are called to make disciples. It's all of us. You know, if we were to look in Ephesians 4, in Ephesians 4, it says that God appointed apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors or shepherds and teachers. And do you know why he appointed these types of people in the church? Did he appoint the evangelists to do all the evangelism? Did he appoint the teachers to do all the teaching? Did he appoint the prophets to do all the prophesying and the apostles to plant all the churches and the pastors to lead everyone? Well, if you read the passage, what does it say? To equip the saints. The job of a spiritual leader is to equip other people to do what, Josh? And to serve, to, to equip the saints to serve, to do the work of the ministry. That word serve is the same word that we get the word deacon from. This is not just like, you know, to go mow your neighbor's lawn when they're sick, although please do, yes. But it's to do this work of ministry, this service to the Lord and the service to the body of Christ, service to people who don't yet know the Lord. You know, this is what it's supposed to look like. So if I have a job description, by the way, the word pastor as just the noun name describing a person is only used one time in the New Testament. It's in Ephesians chapter 4. So if there's a job description of a pastor, it's to equip other people to do the work of ministry. That's my job. And if you have another gifting, if you have an apostolic gift or a prophetic gift, or an evangelistic gift, then yes, use it, but ultimately use it to equip other people to do the same. Because we will never get where we need to get if only a few people are doing what we need to do. And if you read on in the passage, it says that when these leaders, these apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, when they do their job well, then we all grow in unity and we reach the fullness of the measure of Christ and attain maturity. This is the end goal. This is what God has called us to do and to be. A group of people who are equipped to help each other grow and become more unified and reach the fullness of Christ. To be a disciple also means that you have a certain type of intimacy with Jesus. And I also found myself in a position where I felt like I knew how to teach people about who Jesus was, but I didn't feel very confident in teaching them how to develop a close, intimate relationship with him. Even though there were times in my life where I thought I had a close, intimate relationship with him. And I don't know about you, but it seems like sometimes it ebbs and sometimes it flows. Can you relate to that? You know... It, it, one moment it feels like Jesus is standing right beside you and God is holding your hand and the Holy Spirit is bursting to get out from the inside. And then over time it may seem like you're in a barren desert and you're thinking, Jesus who? You know, where is he? Seems so far away. And so even though I had experienced those wonderful times, I felt like I had a hard time knowing how to help anyone else do it. And what I would typically fall on were, were these teaching, a teaching way, you know, giving information. And I did some of that today, right? Even in, the, even in our time of worship, 
just mentioning, you know, this is the God of the universe who loves you so much and his love is more powerful. And, and these things matter. These, these truths need to be spoken. But there will be among you those who go home today and your life will not be changed at all having heard that. Isn't that true? I think we've all experienced it. You know, there's one other thing, other description of what a disciple of Jesus looks like, and it's in Romans 8. You've probably memorized or, or roughly remember that wonderful verse, Romans 8, 28. God works together for good, all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. But then it goes on to say what those purposes are. What are the purposes that we're called to? And the Bible tells us that we are destined. It is our destiny. God has ordained that it will be so, that we'll be conformed to the image of his Son, of Jesus Christ. So if, we, if it's true that Jesus calls us to be disciples who make disciples, then it should be true that we are called to be people who have an intimate love relationship with Jesus Christ, who have experienced a type of maturity in the Lord, attaining the fullness of the measure of Christ, such that our character looks like the character of Jesus. All right, who's done that? Yeah, that's like one of those little cricket sounds things. I mean, that's a big... That's a big, tall order right there, isn't it? It's, it might feel daunting. It might feel scary. You might feel like, you know, maybe you're in here and you've been a Christian a long time. You said, well, that hasn't happened yet. I don't know if that's ever going to happen. So the reality is we do have a problem here. And here's the problem, is that sometimes we get stuck. You ever feel like that guy trapped in a... <laughs> trapped in a jar like you, can't, like you can't get out of the place you're in? Have you ever been in a situation where you thought, if I could just break this stronghold in my life, then I could move forward. If I could just overcome this sin in my life, then I could move forward. If I could just deal with this situation that feels like it's impossible to deal with, then I could move forward in life. If I could, you know, and you fill in the blank. Has, has anyone been there where you just feel like, man, it's the same thing over and over that trips me up. I've certainly been there many times in life with different types of things. It seems like most of us get caught up in life on a few little things. Sometimes, but not always, when we step back and reflect, we think it's really not, it shouldn't be that hard to overcome. What's wrong with me? Right? Why, this shouldn't be that hard. So I'm going to be somewhat autobiographical today. So I'm going to share one with you right now. And I've shared this a few times recently, so forgive me if you've heard it. But I, somewhere along the line, picked up this um, really unhealthy way of responding to certain types of criticism. And I think in general, although, you know, obviously I've got a lot of room to grow in all areas, but I, I think in general, if one of you came to me and said, Stephen, I'm really disappointed with how you handled X, Y, Z, I would hear you out, I would tell you I'm sorry, and I would at least try to do better next time, right? And that's kind of like a normal, healthy way to respond to a critique, right? There have even been times when I have felt um, unfairly attacked by somebody and yet, even in that, I could say, you know, but this part of what they said, that was true about me. I need to work on that. But I tell you what, if, if my wife, and she's not here today, not because of what I'm about to share. <laughs> she's, she's been having a rough go. But if my wife asked me, why didn't you unload the dishwasher this morning? Man, I don't respond half that well. You know? Can any of you relate to, you get triggered in a certain type of, and I'm like, what are you talking, I was late, I, I couldn't, why didn't you unload the dishwasher? I was late for work. You know, as if, as if she were, you know, hitting me with a baseball bat and I needed to defend myself. 
And I've had a hard time because when I step back, I say, that's ridiculous. My wife is five foot nothing. I'm going to be okay. Like she doesn't have a, a black belt in jujitsu or anything. If she asks me about the dishwasher, I'm going to be fine. By the way, hon, if you're watching, I haven't yet unloaded the dishwasher, but I will do it when I get home. But I'm going to be fine. And yet something gets triggered. And when I stop and think about it, I can say that's a silly response. And I don't like that response. I don't like it about myself. And yet there it is. And one of the things that we have to realize is that those automatic responses we have, this is going to feel hard, that's our character. Okay? How you would act when you have time to plan ahead and reflect or strategize, that's, it's good to do those things, and it's good to think how you might respond in the future to something. But how you actually respond in the moment, that's your character. So part of my character, it's not all of it, part of my character is that I get defensive, particularly with certain people that are close to me. Right? And it's not a, anything against you, but I don't care nearly as much what you think about me as I do what my wife thinks about me. Right? And that's appropriate. So this is, this is one of the problems we have. We also face external challenges that if we could kind of reflect and step back, we could probably realize they're not really all that scary, but in the moment they feel so scary that we'll never be able to overcome them or they feel so impossible. I mean, if I asked you, in Jesus Christ, do you have hope for the future? What would you say? Yes, of course. But when that same boss gets on your case again, does it feel hopeless? Right? And so that automatic response, that says something about what you believe in the deepest places. It doesn't mean you don't believe also that you have hope in Jesus Christ, but there's this competing belief in you, and we are divided creatures. There's competing values in us. There's competing uh, responses in us. And so... We are often, as Christians, including leaders, we see this all over, leaders who have moral failure, Christians who have moral failure that destroys their lives and ministries, destroys churches, destroys communities. And it doesn't have to be a leader of a big church for that to happen. And why is that? Why do we fail like that? Why do we fail in our Christian walk by uh, dipping into despair and thinking that it can never change? Why do we fail in our Christian life by, and this might, this might affect some of you, feeling like it's boring? You ever just feel like life is just boring? Like it's just drudgery over and over and over the same? I don't know if you felt that way. But then, you know, when you step back, can the Christian life lived the way Christ invited you to live it be boring? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, the Holy Spirit's in you. How could that ever get old? But we get, we do. But why? Because we're not growing in Christ-like character. We're not growing in intimacy with the Lord. You know, we stall out. And again, I really felt like I wasn't really sure how to help people grow. I knew how, I can teach you to think differently, but I really struggled to know how to help you act differently. And we do live in a world where a lot of times, and this happens in the church and outside, that if you have the right beliefs, that's more important than having the right actions. Don't we kind of, you know, what makes an Orthodox church, a, a Bible-believing, God-fearing church, what makes that church those things? You will almost always talk about their doctrinal statements first, and you won't talk about how much they serve the poor or how much they show humility with one another or how well they take criticism or how unified they are in spirit, how much joy they have with one another. You talk about, well, they believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They believe that the Bible is the authority for all believers. And then you go down the list of these claims, these beliefs. Now, don't get me wrong. You will, if you ever hear me teach in any other scenario, you will not mistake me for someone who doesn't care about these things. I think they're incredibly important and they are necessary, but they're not the whole story. 
And if you missed last week, we talked about how God cares more about our character than he does about just getting the right, checking off the right beliefs. Because what does it matter, James says, to believe, but your belief doesn't turn into action? What does it matter? What have you really done? This is the Bible saying this. What does it matter if you have all the right beliefs, but you don't have the right actions? Jesus says, I mean, James says, oh, uh, I'm sorry, Paul says, you believe in Jesus. Great. The demons believe in Jesus. Yeah, great. I think the demons believe that Jesus died on the cross. I think the demons believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I think the demons believe that the Bible is the word of God. They don't differ on any of those points. But they don't follow the Lord. And so we have this problem. So then we need a diagnosis. Why do we get stuck? And one of the things that I've really been excited about learning, and I want to make clear the order of importance here. So I've been learning about brains the last couple of years. And actually, the last four or five years, I've been learning about brains. Some of it I've been reading in books totally unrelated to faith. Some of them in books absolutely written by Christians from a Christian perspective related to faith. And what I have learned is that everything that I'm learning about the brain and about how we actually learn and how we actually grow, it was already in the Scripture. So I don't think that you need brain science to learn how to follow Jesus. But what's really cool to me is that when I read about brain science, it points me back to the things that already, I already knew were true, but honestly, I personally had significantly devalued them. So let me give you an example. I just said that in the book of James, it says it's great to have faith, but if you have faith without action, it's meaningless. Faith without works is dead, is what James says. So cognitively, I knew that. But if I had spare time and I really wanted to grow and, and I was going to devote time to growing, do you know what I would do? I would read a book. That may not be your go-to. <laughs> I know a lot of you, that's the last thing you might do if you wanted to grow as a Christian. But that's what I would do. I would get a new book to get new ideas so that I could understand better what I ought to do. I have read so many books that have had no impact on my life even though they've changed my thinking. Probably what I should have done is put the book down and gone out and find someone to serve. Probably what I should have done is put the book down and, and gone out to find someone that was mad at me and just practice letting them criticize me. <laughs> Probably what I should have done is put the book down and gone to someone I didn't like very much and do whatever I can to honor them. Do you see what I'm getting at? But I think a lot of us do some version of that. And what's been really cool in my reading is that I've been learning about the function of the right brain and the left brain. So in your right brain, I think the kind of common conception is that the right brain is for art, it's for music, for intuition, uh, it's for anything that's poetry, any of that stuff, right? And then your left brain is for logic and math and, um, you know, if you're going to write a textbook, you use your left brain. If you're going to write a book of poetry, you use your right brain. You see where I'm going? Well, now that we've got better understanding of what the brain does, that's been shown to be false. That's not how the left and right brain work, really. In fact, I, was, I saw this really interesting video that in the early 20th century, for young children who had uncontrollable seizures, there were, there were doctors who would literally remove one half of their brain. I think they called it a hemispherectomy. They would remove an entire half of these kids' brain with an 87% success rate in them living and not having seizures anymore. And they basically performed like any other kid in school. So what does that tell us? <laughs> a, uh, and not just in school, but in life. Like they, they could do all these things. They could be creative. They could do music. They could. So we learned that, one, the brain is incredibly malleable. 
incredibly adaptive. That's the first thing. But secondly, it tells us that that's not really, it's not really just one half of the brain does one type of thinking and another half of the brain does another type of thinking. But what they have discovered is that when you think about something, it travels through a path in your brain. So whenever you have a thought, it actually starts in the back of your brain, it goes up and goes to the right, and then in front of your right eye, it skips over to the left side of the brain and then goes all the way to the back again. And they can watch this happening with imagery. You know, the sensors that they use, they can watch these things happen. And what happens is that everything you think about gets processed by both halves of your brain. But they do process a little differently. The right side of your brain is processing faster than the left side of your brain. And it's processing different things. So, for example, if a dog were to walk in here into our sanctuary right now, then the right side of your brain would pull up what that is. It's a dog. And then it would also pull up, is it good, bad, scary? Is this a joyful thing? Is this a bad thing? You know, it kind of just gets this, this emotional response. If you were terrorized by a dog as a kid, your right brain would say, warning, warning, warning. If you had a wonderful dog growing up, your right brain would say, Yay, there's a dog in this sanctuary. And then it crosses over, and then on this side of your brain, it's going to say, oh, and it's a Boston Terrier. Oh, and it has a leash on it, and so that's good. Oh, the owner's with him, that's good. Oh, it's coming up here. What should I do in response to this? But how you respond is going to be impacted by the message that the right side gives you. And here's the thing. Right side of the brain cycles six times per second, Left side of the brain cycles five times per second. So you're never actually conscious of the thoughts that are happening over here. They're called pre-conscious thoughts. But that's where most of your immediate responses to situations come from. So we spend time in the church primarily, I would say we focus probably 90% of our attention on the activity that goes on over here but we'll never be able to change those reactive behaviors unless we address what's going on over here. Isn't that fascinating? If it's true, if it's true. So what are the things, really, that are going on in the right brain? Well, it, the right brain tells you who you are. So six times a second, in relation to what's happening in the world around you, your brain is telling you who you are. Your brain is telling you who you belong to. So six times per second, you're, you're encountering people and circumstances, and your brain is telling you who you are in relation to others. It does uh, everything related to emotional attunement and attachment. So how you interact with other people is going to be affected by what your brain is telling you about how to uh, uh, relate with and attach to and attune with that person. Right? Um, it's the good, bad, or scary part. That's part of the, the right brain. And then it's also a lot of this character stuff. And, but it's all related. So, for example, if my wife says, why didn't you unload the dishwasher? And I'm not feeling particularly connected to her in that moment. And I'm feeling that this is a bad thing that's going to somehow hurt me. This line of questioning is going to hurt me. And I believe that I'm the kind of person that either... Uh, always fails to do the right thing, right? So that's one side of it. Or how dare she question me because I get things right all the time. Either way, that's going to feel like a threat. Then my identity, my relational attachment, and the good, bad, scary thing all come together. And then on the left side of the brain formulates the words, why didn't you unload the dishwasher? I had to go to work early. Do you see how this works? And all of this stuff is happening so fast that I can never observe it happening. And so what brain science has taught us is that you actually can't directly impact this side of your brain. You have to do it indirectly. And if it's all about relational attachment and it's all about identity and group identity, personal identity, group identity, good, bad, scary, 
then it's actually interesting the kind of things that they encourage us to do. So if you want to develop an attachment with someone, you look them in the face. You look them in the eyes. And you smile at them. And you encourage them. What is the way that God blesses us? The Lord turn His face to you. Have it shine on you. Right? This is wonderful imagery. And it's always been there. But I didn't quite see how it related to me being secure in who I am in, in the Lord. That He turns His face to me. And it's all over the Scripture, God turning His face. Jesus says, uh, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And He has this deep relationship with the disciples. And so through Jesus Christ, they learn how to have a relationship with the Father. Paul says that as the veils are taken away and we look at Christ unveiled, then we'll become like Him. That as we gaze into His face without any barrier, then we become like Him. This is powerful stuff. And it's been there. I just never thought much about it. It didn't seem important. But it was important to the writers of Scripture. And, you know, one of the realities is, you know, why are we, you know, why talk about this now? You know, in the ancient world, they didn't live in this kind of culture that valued more the left side of the brain than the right side of the brain. The way that you train someone was that you discipline them to do something over and over and over and over and over again. It wasn't by telling them what to do over and over and over and over again. That's what we often do raising kids. You, why didn't you do this? You should have done this. You should have cleaned your room. Why did you not clean your room? You know you have to clean your room. You have to clean your room because of X, Y, and Z. If you understand why, surely you'll do it. But most parents don't have much success with that. Uh, myself included, because we've done that for a long time. What works a lot better is to get in there and clean the room with the kid many, many times and then be there with them while they clean it many, many times. You know, when I was in college, I went to the University of Memphis my first year. And the University of Memphis at that time had the number one ranked racquetball team in the country. And the racquetball coach at the University of Memphis was also the, the coach for the U.S. national team. And I had been playing racquetball growing up, so when I got there my first semester, I signed up and I took a racquetball class. And you can imagine how different the racquetball I played was compared to the racquetball he was asking me to play. If you've ever played a sport, whether it's golf or tennis or any kind of sport where you do the same motion over and over again, you know, basketball with a jump shot, you know, whatever, free throws, you know, whatever it is, the only way to get better is to condition yourself to do it the same way every time. So I, I should have brought my racket here today. But, you know, when I grew up, I just, you know, hit the ball. <laughs> and then this coach told me, no, you need to position yourself like this. You need to put your weight on your left knee. You need to swing down like this and then flip your wrist in front of your left knee. So I said, okay. And then I went out there and I played racquetball like this. So what would we do in class? The first half of class was, you know, no ball, just swings. You know, and I'm probably not even doing it as well as I did then, but I remember how to do it. And then we do it with the ball. And you know what was amazing? In racquetball, the best shot is when it hits the, the back wall so close to the floor that it just rolls out because it's impossible to return. If you hit the ball down on the wall, it hits the floor and bounces up. You can return it. If you hit the ball up, it bounces off up, and then you can return it. If you hit the ball totally flat and you hit it low enough to the ground, it will just roll away. It's impossible to return. By the end of that semester, if I took 30 shots with that racket just by myself, at least 15 of them would roll out from the wall. But you know what happened in a game? <laughs> It takes ages to train yourself to do that the right way. Ages. It's the same with a musical instrument. You practice scales. It's so boring. Why? So that your fingers know where to go. You play the same song over and over and over. And you get it wrong over and over and over. And by the way, I should point out, when you're a musician and you get something wrong that you're learning over and over and over, any decent musician will not think, 
oh, I'm such a failure. They think, oh, I'm getting closer. I'm getting closer. So kids, every time you don't clean your room, it's not that you're a failure. It's that you're getting closer. And you need to keep getting closer. So it's not an excuse to not keep trying. It's actually a reminder to try even more. I read this book called Peak by Eric Ander, Ander Erickson. And Peak, not a Christian book, it's just written about how do people become experts at things. And have you ever heard the 10,000-hour practice rule? So if you practice 10,000 hours, then you can become an expert in anything. That was the theory. And he said that theory is only partially true. What's true is that, is that 10,000 hours of the right kind of practice will help you become an expert in anything. And by the way, there's scientific research that suggests that any one of you in this room can become an expert at anything. Maybe not the best in the world, but an expert at anything. And really, the biggest difference is, what are you that committed to? So most of us don't have a passion for anything enough to do 10,000 hours of the kind of practice I'm about to describe. But if you did, then you could do it. And actually, your brain would change. There was In the book, he talks about violinists. So professional orchestral violinists have spent over 10,000 hours perfecting their craft in a very structured way. It's been honed over centuries how to train a violinist. They know exactly how to do it. You follow the program, you will become an expert violinist. But uh, if someone touches your finger and your eyes were closed, then you'd feel it, right? And you'd also know which finger was being touched. Oh, that's my, you know, I'm doing it. But like if someone else did it, that's my ring finger, pointer finger, pinky. A violinist, a professional violinist, top level, they can discern the touch on their finger that most people can't feel at all. But here's the key. They can't tell you which finger is being touched because the part of their brain that receives that input has grown so large that the four or five different receptors all grew into one another, and so it's just one big cluster of synapses. So they can't tell which finger is being touched, but they can discern a touch more delicate than anyone else. Isn't that fascinating? Their brain changed. It's not that they had that brain so they could become a great violinist. They became a great violinist so they had that kind of brain. But they were never trying to change that part of their brain. But this is what the Bible teaches us. Do you know if you spend time in prayer every day, it does something to your brain? Did anyone ever read that book, A Year of Living Biblical? It was uh, written by a, a, an, an, a, a writer at, I think it was the, the New York Times. And he had a Jewish background, and so he said, I'm going to live as if the Bible is true for a year. So he started in the Old Testament and went to the New Testament. So one of the things the Old Testament requires is praying every day, multiple times a day. So no faith in God. He prays every day, multiple times a day. You know what happened by the end of it? He felt like someone was listening to his prayers and he wanted to pray and he needed prayer. Now, this is not, I'm not saying that to, you know, he might infer that that's what's happening to us, that God's not real. We just think he's real because we're doing this. But my point is, it, his brain changed from the act. From the act, not from the belief. So the Bible is in encouraging us to do things that change our deeper thinking all the time. And I'm going to get away from saying change our brains. It is changing our brains, but it's changing our thinking. It's just changing the thinking that we're not aware of, that's pre-conscious. But it's been telling us to do that for 3,000 years. It didn't need brain science to know that that was true. But we've often dismissed it or minimized it. And so that's what's been exciting is to see this kind of come back up. So my picture up there is half a brain. That's all lit up. The other half looks dead. Oftentimes, the reason that we're not growing is that we're only addressing half of the resources, the mental resources God has given us. We're only addressing certain types of beliefs that we hold, the ones that we notice, the ones that we can think about. We're not addressing the types of the beliefs that we hold that are, you know, not accessible to our, to our conscious thought. 
Because again, it's cycling six times a second versus five times a second. So this part of our brain can never keep up with this part of our brain. And God designed it that way. So again, we're not talking about, oh, brain science, save us. We're saying, hey, we've noticed that God made us like this. Why does, God, why does Jesus say, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments? That's John 14. Why does he say that? Because he wants us to be like him. But I'm, I would also suggest that he says that because it's true that the only way to really obey someone is that you have to love them first. The right side of the brain has to be attuning, connecting, has identity that's I am loved by Jesus and I love him and we're in relationship with each other. He's the vine. I'm the branch. If that becomes true over here, then what do I do when Jesus tells me to do something becomes a whole lot easier. I mean, ultimately, every time you don't obey Jesus, it's because you think you have a better plan for you than he does. Right? You don't really trust that what he's saying is the best thing for you. Otherwise, you would do it. If Jesus says, you know, I, I want you, I want you to enjoy this bowl of ice cream, you'd say, heck yeah, bring the ice cream because you think, oh, that's great. But if Jesus says to you, I want you to enter into a relationship that, that's going to be hard for you, but there's going to be good on the other side of it, you say, like, I don't know if I trust that. You see, obedience always comes down to trust. Always, and trust is always related to love. So Jesus says, if you obey me, then, I, then you love me. No. He says, if you love me, then you'll obey me. He puts love first. So again, the Bible is doing this all over the place. So what's the answer? What's the solution? Well, we need to train the other half of our brains. We need to grow the way God designed us to grow. So how do we do that? Well, the only way to train the other half of your brain, the only way to use everything that God designed you to use in growing is to incorporate these indirect ways of training that we often don't even think about in the church or in our lives. And yet, I would suggest that most of the things that you learned in life, you learned in a more of an indirect way. So what do I mean? So if you want to learn computer skills, what could you do? Could take a computer class, right? Could pick up, you know, Windows for Dummies or whatever is out there, and you could read and learn and do all that. But do you know how, um, do you guys remember when you first got a computer with a mouse for the first time? You'd never had a mouse before, right? I remember being a kid, there, were no, there was no mouse and then all of a sudden there was a mouse. So you know what they did to help people learn how to use a mouse? They created a game called Minesweeper. And in Minesweeper, you have to right-click and left-click on these boxes. And you can only unclick the boxes that don't have a mine in them. And the only way you know is by these little, this little numbering system. And you have to figure out where the mines are. Do you know how many hours I played that stupid game? But you know what I can do without thinking about it? I can direct my mouse anywhere on that screen without a second thought. They trained me to use a mouse by enticing me to play a game. That's pretty cool. I mean, I sh didn't need that many hours <laughs> to learn the skill. That's pretty cool. That's an indirect way of training yourself. A direct way would be to, you know, get a book about mice or mouses or whatever you call them. And then intentionally, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. And then, you know, you could do that 10,000 times, but that would be really boring. So they did it indirectly. You know, you're, you could, if you want to learn how to drive in a new city, you can get a map book. They, I think they still make them. And you could get a map book and start memorizing the streets. Or you know what you could do? You could just go out and get lost on purpose and then try to find your way home you'll probably learn the city much faster that way than you will with the map book. Now, they're both helpful, and they each have their purpose, especially before Google Maps or if you don't have your phone and you do get really lost, it's really great to have a map book. But if you got free time 
and you want to learn the ins and outs of a new place, go get yourself lost and then have fun trying to find your way home. You know, these are, these are uh, things that we kind of intuitively recognize a lot. Did you know that every time you use the internet, it actually alters the, the physical layout of your brain until your brain is optimized for the internet, but is really bad at sitting down and reading a book? Because the internet's all about things popping up and hyperlinks and your brain's going like this and you sit down to read a book. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. You, you maybe you've used a computer a lot and you haven't read for a while. You pick up a book and you're like, I just can't concentrate on this. That's because your brain changed. But you didn't try to change it. You changed it through these indirect means. And so what we're inviting you to do over the next seven weeks is to be a part of a group that's going to intentionally do these types of things to help you change your reactions to circumstances, to change the kind of character, the things that happen when you don't have a chance to think about it, to change the experience of love or lacking an experience of love and connection with others, to change your, your sense of identity and your individual identity and communal identity, you know, to actually live out the reality of Jesus being the vine and you being the branch, right? To experience joy that maybe you've been lacking. And we've talked about other ways. I've said this a hundred times from here. I can't choose to be joyful, but I can choose to, be, to focus on gratitude. And when I focus on gratitude, I become more joyful. It's the exact same kind of thing. We're just going to take it the next step. So that's the invitation. That's what God's inviting us to do. Is he saying, look, let's look a little bit about how I designed you to grow and then let's practice doing those things that take the design into account. So I don't want you to think that, again, it's not about, oh, we need brain science. It really isn't. It's just that the brain science has confirmed what God was already teaching us that so often we weren't focused on and we were ignoring. So, you think about a passage like in Hebrews 10 where it says, do not forsake the gathering of the elect, right? And you think, oh, oh, there's pastor again trying to make sure I don't skip church. Bringing up Hebrews 10, don't forsake the assembly. But what if, what if God knows that the only way you can really grow is in relationship with others? What if God knows that the only way you can really grow is to consistently be in relationship with people who not only worship in the room together, but actually know each other well enough to help each other grow? So, for example, I mentioned one of the things in, in the type of practice that's required to become an expert in something is that you need to do the same thing over and over again, but then you always need to challenge yourself to the next thing. And then you always need feedback from someone to tell you whether you're doing it right or not. So if I had stood in that racquetball court every more, or three mornings a week for a semester, but I didn't have the number one racquetball coach in the country telling me you're doing it wrong, do it like this, I never would have gotten better. If you don't have someone in your life who can say to you, why didn't you unload the dishwasher? And then you aren't in a safe enough place relationally with that person or, or with the Lord to be able to say, this isn't an attack on my identity. I can respond and say, you know, I didn't unload the dishwasher this morning because I was feeling pressured to leave on time and I didn't get up early enough to make sure that you wouldn't have to do it even though I, because I was late. But if I'd been more caring... I would have set my alarm earlier so that you wouldn't be in this situation. What a different response. And when, I, when you respond that way, what you're doing is you're actually verbalizing this reality. I can get up earlier and make sure that this person doesn't need to pick up my slack. That's training. That's training yourself to do it differently next time. But if all you do is get upset, you're going to do it the same way over and over again. Is that a little glimpse is that a helpful glimpse into what we're going to try to do? So we're not abandoning any of the other stuff that we've been doing for your whole life as a believer. We're just saying, let's add in this piece. All right, I want to pray for us. And... Um,
uh, for all of you out there. Well, Lord, we are so, um, it just feels so many times that we are just completely incapable of becoming who we want to be and who you've called us to be to do the things that you've asked of us, the things we want to do. I'm just reminded of Paul. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't do, that I don't want to do, I do. And that describes us, that describes me to a T. I think that describes a lot of us. So Lord, our prayer today is that as we learn more about how you've made us to grow and how you've made us to learn, Lord, that we would be able to incorporate these things into our own practice, to our own lives, to be these communities of practice who actually are helping each other to grow and overcome the strongholds, the traps, the, that, that uh, feeling stuck experience that we so often uh, know in such a profound and personal way. So Lord, use these next seven weeks, Lord, to, to awaken our awareness to another way of doing things. And God, as we do them, help them to take uh, root in our lives and over time to have an impact in the deepest places. Because God, our desire is that we would be transformed into the image of Christ. And we know that it's going to happen. We know it is. You've, you've destined us for it. Lord, but we want to get on this side of heaven. We want to get as close to it as we can. We don't ever want to find the limit. We want to keep pressing on, as Paul says, looking ahead, pressing on. Uh, because there is uh, a measure out there that you've said we can achieve the fullness of. There is a maturing that you said we can do. There is a unity you said we can find. And Lord, there is a calling that we need to fulfill. So we put all this into your hands uh, with hope and trust and love. In Jesus' name, amen.